Well, praise the Lord, everyone. Amen. It is, it is good to be in the house of the Lord tonight. And uh, pastor just put the pressure on, I think. Um, but I, I am glad to be here. And, um, well, I guess I can let you go ahead and be seated. I was trying to decide if I wanted to read a verse to get started tonight or not, but I think we'll just hit the ground running. We've got quite a bit of Bible reading. If you have your Bible, you may want to keep it ready. I am thankful for the opportunity um, to be here again in this spot. This always seems like a good idea until it's time to get up here. Then I question how good of an idea it really was. But I'm thankful for the opportunity tonight. And we talked last week, as you know, we've been going through a series of lessons, discipleship lessons, and uh, we are in a section that has really focused on doctrinal points. And I think this is crucial. I may have even mentioned this last week. Because I know for many of us, these are familiar points and familiar areas, but hopefully the Lord, as we continue to grow, he opens our minds and we see things in a different light or with a different angle than we did earlier in our walk with the Lord. And the writer of the book of Hebrews said, we ought to give the more earnest heed to those things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And the implication being there, these are things worth holding on to. And uh, and so I, there is value in this. We have had evenings where we have discussed the Word of God and the nature of God. And we've talked about the gospel and we talked about the church. And last week we talked about the new birth. And tonight we're going to talk about the last things. And not only is this the last in this little series about doctrinal things, um, we're going to talk about really the last things and where we are headed in this thing. Now, it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 6, he was making the point that he was not laying again the foundation of the basic things, but he was building on that foundation and he was going onward. But He enumerated what these foundational things are. And if you read Hebrews 6 verse 1, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, he doesn't mean abandoning the principles, but leaving the discussion of those things, uh, of the principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and, and of eternal judgment. So you, in those two verses, you get a nice, concise list of foundational doctrinal points that are of value to the believer, and those things must be established if you're going to build further, if you're going to continue to grow it's important that those things be established. And so that's what we're really trying to do here over the last few weeks is make sure that we're kind of all on the same page together. And um, this tonight, when we think about really those last two points there, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, 
we think in terms of prophecy, and rightfully so. And of course, as with many of these topics that we've covered, um, they could be worth their own series of lessons in themselves. And so we don't have the time to do anything more than kind of hit the highlights tonight on some of these things. But it is important, and and one of the reasons why it's important, and we'll see this as we begin to look into the Scripture, one of the reasons why it is important is that understanding where we are headed can give us a great sense of stability and hope in the world that we live in. And the writer of Hebrews said in another place, talking about the hope of salvation and so forth, he says, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. And we live in tumultuous times. We live in a stormy, chaotic world. And Paul said in Ephesus or in the book of Ephesians, he said that we ought not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes along. And of course, you know, when we think of winds of doctrine, sometimes we think of things that come through the church. But I'm going to tell you something. The world has its own doctrine. And it's trying with great strength and with great impetus to try to impose its doctrine on us. And that effort is only going to increase. That's not going to be diminished with time. So if we're going to survive and we're going to make it through this era in which whatever can be shaken will be shaken, it will be because we have been built upon a solid foundation of doctrine, of truth. And part of that really is understanding where we are going in all of this. Now, if you just will back up just a little bit and take a big picture look for just a moment, the word prophecy technically and as it is used in scripture means something that has a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. Prophecy is what the prophet speaks on behalf of God. When we think of prophecy, we usually think of foretelling the future. But really, in its most general sense, prophesying is speaking on behalf of God, giving a message to the people from God. And so uh, someone has said prophecy can be both foretelling, that is foretelling the future, but it can also just be forthtelling, that is speaking on behalf of God. So, for instance, this kind of, I guess, has a practical import. And uh, when we think of the gift of prophecy, Paul talks about the gift of prophecy in Corinthians. What is he talking about? Is he talking about a gift in which the future is known? Sometimes there is a gifting. God opens a window and, and there is the, this prophetic to understand what is happening But I think sometimes it is also an ability to speak on behalf of God. We apostolics, we often call that anointed preaching. Man, he was anointed. He was really preaching. He was really bringing the word. When in fact, a more, the uh, opinions expressed here may or may not reflect those of the management. A more technically correct way to say that may be that he was really being used in the gift of prophecy. The Lord had gifted him, the preacher, in a special way 
to speak on his behalf. And that's what we mean when we say anointed preaching. Because in the scripture, in the Old Testament, anointing usually has to do with kings and offices and all of that sort of thing, right? So I say all of that to say, in a measure, all of scripture is prophetic. It is the word of God and it is, contains words spoken by men on behalf of God. And yet there is a significant portion of scripture that is foretelling the future, that has to do with the future. And you can, if you just do a little bit of research, you can Google or whatever, you can find all sorts of numbers and figures about this. But different people will estimate different numbers of prophecies or words from the Lord about future events in the scripture. But there the numbers vary. They're on the order of eight, ten thousand. I've seen both of those numbers. And in reality, this boils down to somewhere between twenty-five and maybe thirty-three percent. Between one fourth and one third of the scripture was about the future at the time in which it was written. And of course much of the scripture has been fulfilled, but there is this remainder that remains to be fulfilled, and that is what we're going to be focusing on as we work our way through things tonight. Now, there is this one story that will kind of get us kicked off if you turn to Luke chapter 24, and uh, this is one of my favorite passages in in a lot of different ways. The, The setting here, the crucifixion, has occurred. Jesus has been crucified. He has been in the tomb. And this is the first day of the week. And so some have already gone to the tomb. They have found the tomb empty. His body is not there. There are some saying that he is alive, but not many, if any, have seen him at this point. So there is a great deal of confusion. And it's Appropriate, I guess, that we would start here tonight since we're in this season. But think of the, the state of mind that these disciples would have been in. Jesus having just been crucified and with the Sabbath and everything else that was going on, they hadn't had a chance to properly prepare him and there was some hope that they would have access to the body. They get there, now the body is gone, now the confusion is even is even greater. And if you go to verse 13 of Luke 24, the scripture says, Behold, two of them, two disciples, went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about three score furlongs. That's about seven miles. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Wouldn't that be something? But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. There was something spiritual. Their vision had been blurred and there's lots of speculation. Was it just their own uh, downheartedness, their own downcast outlook that caused them to not be able to see him? Or was there something supernatural that was taking place that the Lord hid himself from them? Perhaps that was the case. But Jesus said unto them, What manner of communications are ye, or are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? 
Now, this is a little bit of an interesting verse because um, it, in the, some of the translations render this a little bit different that not all of these words are Jesus' words. And in fact, if you read it in the New American Standard, Jesus says to them, what manner of communications are these that you have one to another? And the, and the New American Standard says they stopped walking and were sad. They looked at him in astonishment. Like, how could you even ask us what we're talking about? And in fact, their, their next question, their next interaction reveals this. One of them, whose name was Cleopas, answering said unto him, Are you only a stranger in Jerusalem and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these things? And Jesus says, What things? He's just kind of he's just kind of reeling them in just a little bit at a time. And so they said, Well, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and before all the people. Now that's a great testimony. If you can be approved of God and of people, that's a great testimony. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And verse 21 gets to the point. We trusted that it had been, it had been he which would have redeemed and beside all of these things, this is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulcher and found it even as the women had said, but they saw him not. So they summarized their complete confusion at the situation. We trusted he was crucified. Now he's gone. We don't know where the body is. There was many layers here of confusion. And the Lord kind of takes off the gloves and says, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now notice this. In the midst of their confusion and in the midst of the worst day of their life, where did the Lord go? He went to the prophets. He went to the scripture. He went to the word of the Lord. And he said, that's where you're really going to find comfort for your time of difficulty and in your time of need. Notice verse 27. Well, Verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Some of the more modern translations make it even more forceful because for us, when we say something ought to be a certain way, that just kind of means it's optional, but it would really be better if it was this way. But different translations make it more forceful in the sense that they say explicitly it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to enter into his glory. Now think about those three key words there. Necessary, suffer, and glory. We, don't, we like to skip that middle one and we say it's necessary that we have glory. But the Lord said, if you understood what was in the scripture, you would understand that in order for Christ to get to the glory that you're so anxious to see him in, he has to first go through the suffering. It's necessary to go through the suffering to get to the glory. 
At verse 27, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't that have been something? To be on that road that day and hear a Bible study from Jesus about Jesus. He explained all things about himself from the prophets and from the scriptures. Now, this brings great comfort to our hearts. This is what the Lord gave them to comfort them. He was explaining from the scripture how things had to have been, how it was necessary. And if you begin to think, I mentioned earlier the number of prophecies in the scripture, but if you just begin to think of the number of prophecies about Jesus Christ, the ones that we just take for granted that are so easily remembered, Isaiah seven fourteen, he would be born of a virgin. And Micah said he would be born in Jerusalem. And um, another prophet said he would be betrayed for the price of a slave or 30 pieces of silver and that they would take that 30 pieces of silver and they would buy a place to bury strangers or the people who came through that didn't have family land. They were aliens. And you just can name off one scripture after another from all the way from Genesis where the Lord said that he would the serpent would bruise his heel and he would crush the serpent's head. And uh, Abraham said on the way up Moriah that God would provide himself a sacrifice for sins. And you begin to see all of these various prophecies and you can imagine this Bible study that Jesus is teaching on the road to Emmaus. And the point tonight for us, I think, is that when the scripture speaks, we can have confidence that it is correct and that it is telling us what it is that we need to hear. Because so many of the prophetic things in Scripture, so many of the foretellings of Scripture have come to pass in exactly the manner in which they were spoken and in which they were told, that should give us great confidence that when the Lord opens a window to us and shows us our future and where we're going, that we can move with confidence and assurance even in the midst of uncertainty and even in the midst of a world that's turned upside down and in the midst of things that we don't understand, yet the scripture tells us God is working all of these things out and that he is fully in control. What you will see as we work our way through looking at the New Testament is that the New Testament believers were totally convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Lord, first of all, was risen from the dead. And that secondly, that resurrection had practical impacts for them, not only in the present, but also it had an impact on the future. And so all of their future was wrapped up in this understanding. If you look on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter is talking about the Lord and there is this undertone already in Acts chapter 2 that the Lord is going to return. And he even quotes from Psalm 110 which speaks of the ultimate victory of Messiah. And there's kind of an implication there that, that Jesus is, even though he's not there bodily in Acts chapter 2, that he is returning 
and that he will come back and that he will be there. And in fact, this really is, there's, there's kind of two key ideas, I suppose, that bring the most comfort to the New Testament believer. One of them has to do with the resurrection of the dead and the other is the return of Christ. Those two things are linked together. And what we will see is that the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, they fully expected their lives to be changed because of it and that gave them hope that he was coming back. Now, you say, well, exactly what are you, what are you referring to? Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and you can see, um, see what, I'm, what I'm getting at here. This is what Peter is talking about. There is a hope, and there is a looking forward to um, the return of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll start with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For the apostles and for uh, the New Testament church, everything was built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the key point. And the fact that Christ had been raised from the dead, Peter could write with confidence, he hath begotten us again to a lively hope. Notice verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. The resurrection not only has immediate impact, it has a future impact. And whatever you gain in this world is temporary and it's not going to last. But notice what Peter says. It was guaranteed for us an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, fading not away, reserved in heaven for us. And then notice verse 5. Don't fret over yourself and your own weakness. We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, trials, and difficulties. Yes, there is a season of heaviness, but there is also this undergirding, underlying strength that comes from the fact that we understand that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. We have an inheritance and we're being kept by the faith of God until we receive that inheritance. He says that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's not just his resurrection, but there is a looking for the appearing of Christ that is coming also. Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not, Yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. This was the hope of the New Testament church. Now let me just remind you, the church was not built in some sterile, protected environment. But the church was birthed into a world dominated by the Roman Empire. And the Romans ruled ruthlessly and cruelly, and the church thrived in Rome, and it thrived in Corinth, and it thrived in 
Ephesus. And it thrived in all of these places. If you read the Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, one of the churches, he says, I know you have built right where Satan's seat is. The devil has a throne and he has a principality and you have built a church right at the doorstep of where Satan rules. So they were very familiar with difficulty and with things pushing back and and all kinds of trouble and what we go through in this day and age is nothing new. This is not... This is not some brand new thing that has overtaken us that no one else is familiar with. But even in the New Testament, this was the common thing. This was their experience. And yet what they always referred back to was the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the expectation of his imminent return. And um, what did Titus say? He said, teaching us that denying denying ourselves and living godly and righteously in this present evil world. He said, looking unto Jesus, looking for that glorious hope or the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope, is his return. Now there are, there are two very famous passages that deal, first of all, let's talk about the resurrection of the dead. And, of course, the one that jumps to mind, at least to my mind, first is First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul again. And, you know, maybe it helps to remind ourselves that um, a good portion of Paul's writings occurred when he was in prison. And so when he was at his darkest times in this world, he would begin to hear the voice of the Lord and hear the encouragement of the Lord, and it always seemed to center around this distant hope that even though things now are not perfect, there is a hope for us that is perfect and is coming. And of course, um, he says, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, I would not have you uh, to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that is, they are in the grave, they are dead, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him when he returns. The implication. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede go before those that are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul is describing this resurrection event or rapture of the saints, both living and dead. And I love verse 18. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Because the truth is, in this world that we live in, everything is temporary, including you and me. These old bodies give out, and we have to put them in the ground. But Paul says, wait a minute. Just because they go in the ground, just because they are asleep, 
that is not the end of it. And you say, that sounds so fanciful. That is almost hard for me to believe. I just cannot wrap my mind around the Lord coming and calling all of the dead from all of the eras and ages of history and calling them all up to heaven all at once. But I remind you of the road to Emmaus where the Lord taught everything that the prophets and the scriptures said about him and they all came true. And if those things came true about him, we can have faith and trust and we can hold on to these words. This really is our hope. This is the reason why we sorrow not as those who have no hope. What our family has faced, many of you have faced. What we have faced in recent weeks is not strange to many of you. But I will say it again. The pit of sorrow... And the hurt that we face is not bottomless, but there is a floor to our sadness and our sorrow when we realize that the Lord has all of this in control and there is coming a day when we will all be reunited together in the the air with the Lord and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And notice this is their hope. There is a similar passage, 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul actually comes to the defense, I guess you would say, of the resurrection. And this is an interesting passage to me in the sense there's he covers a lot of ground. And um, I, I'll say this. Um, you may not know this. But Johnny Cash, yeah, that Johnny Cash, he actually wrote a biography of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it was kind of in a novel form. But he did a lot of research on this. And one of the things he said, I think it's in maybe even in the opening part of this, like maybe a foreword or an author's introduction. He said, one thing I've discovered is that Bible will shed a lot of light on the commentaries. <laughs> in other words, you can go off reading commentaries all you want to, but you're going to find, you're going to get a lot of understanding. You just find yourself in the Word. And one thing that is helpful is reading, and there are, there are new layouts and translations that kind of help with this. But one thing I think, if you haven't done this or you don't do this, give it a shot. Read long passages at once. Because when you read in the flow of what the writer was saying, see, sometimes we come to church and we're familiar with the scripture because the preacher stands up and he reads three verses and then he preaches and then we know that, but we don't know the context of those three verses. When you read long passages, it follows in the flow of what the writer is saying. And in fact, well, let's just read 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start with verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently, there was a doctrine going around that there was no resurrection. Paul says, how can you say there's no resurrection? You're preaching that Christ was raised from the dead. How can you say there's no resurrection? If there be no resurrection, verse 13, of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen then is our preaching vain and your faith is also vain. Yea, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up if the dead rise not. 
In verse 16, if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain and you're yet in your sins. So he says, we might as well all pack up and go to the house if there is no resurrection. Because if there is no resurrection, Christ is not raised. We all sit here in our sins and we have no hope for getting out of them. Why are we sitting here looking at each other? Then, verse 18, they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Now, I have heard that verse over and over all my life. But it wasn't until a few years ago I would realize this is right in the middle of this defense of resurrection. And Paul is saying, when he says if we have hope in this life only, he's saying if there is no resurrection, we have no hope. We are of all men most miserable because we've already seen the end of sin. We know what's coming and there is no hope. This is the source of our great misery. But verse 20, thankfully, comes to the rescue. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that sleep. So this is, again, the source of our great hope is the fact that there is a resurrection from the dead. And... He goes on, of course, and talks about the nature of the body that is resurrected and the fact that it was sown in dishonor and it's raised in honor and it was sown um, a natural body and it's raised a heavenly body. When we are resurrected, when we meet again, these will be glorified bodies. I don't know what that means, but I think it's a good thing. I don't know what the details mean. Um, There's some things I've put in my order that I would like to have changed. I don't know whether the Lord is taking orders or not. Probably not. For those of us who hope that things are going to be dramatically different, we just have to consider that when the Lord was risen, he had his glorified body. He went, appeared in rooms without walking through, with the doors locked. He just appeared in the midst of them. He appeared on the road to Emmaus. And then when they did recognize him later, he disappeared from their sight. They ran back to Jerusalem, and then he shows up in that room. But even in that glorified state, he could still say to Thomas, see the nail prints in my hands and put your fist in my side if you really want to. So there apparently is some things that, there are some things that travel from this natural body into the glorified body. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. But notice the end of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Paul says, um, where should we start? Um, Well, let's start in verse 47. He's um, talking about the first man and the resurrected man. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He's talking about Adam and Jesus. As is the earthy, such are they that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, or they that are heavenly, as we have borne the image of the earthly, or the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. That is our great hope. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. Let me explain it to you. Now, here's another little side note. When you see mystery in the New Testament, this does not mean something that is mysterious and ununderstandable. What the writer is saying is, I'm going to show you, I want to tell you a secret. 
is what he's really saying. So something that has not been revealed until now, I'm about to explain it to you. Let me share this secret with you. And he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Whether we are alive or dead, we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then at the resurrection, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is our great hope. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in 1 Thessalonians, he said, comfort one another with these words. Notice what he says here in verse 58. Therefore, because you have this hope, because of the resurrection, because All of this is going to come to pass because you're going to be transformed, because you're going to be changed. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It seems like sometimes we're jousting against the wind. What hope do we have against a culture that is blowing and pushing us around? What hope do we have of changing anything? But Paul says, wait a minute. You've got to look at the end. And because when you see where you are headed, that will give you the strength to remain steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. When it feels like sometimes... But it doesn't matter what we do, what impact does it have. Paul says, you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I know that you were probably expecting that if we were going to talk about the last things, we'd be, have some big chart and we'd talk about Daniel's 70 weeks and uh, we'd have 69 weeks already done and then some indeterminate amount of time and then there would be the 70th week. I honestly... I'm not sure how all of these pieces fit together. I'm not sure what the timing is exactly going to be like. I do know there is a tribulation, there is a great tribulation that is coming upon this world. And there are some who believe this resurrection, this catching away of the church will happen before the resurrection. There are some who believe it will happen in the middle of the resurrection, or I'm sorry, of the great tribulation, at the beginning of the tribulation, before tribulation starts. Some think it will happen in the middle of the tribulation. Some think it will happen at the end. This much I am confident in, that the church will not be subject to the wrath of God. God is going to pour out his wrath in judgment upon this world. But the bride, the apple of his eye, is going to be protected. And whether that means we are raptured before the tribulation begins or if the first half is the wrath of man and the second half of the tribulation is the wrath of God and God pulls us out in the middle or if he, like the children of Israel, protects us as though we live in Goshen and he protects us through all of that, I just believe, I don't, 
I'm not saying that we're not going to suffer, and I'm not saying it's not going to be difficult times, but the church will not suffer the wrath of God. And we may suffer the wrath of man, but we're not going to suffer the wrath of God. And we will be protected from that. Those who believe that this rapture happens at the end are left to say that the catching away of the church and the return of the Lord happen at the same time. Remember, Peter was saying it is this return of Jesus Christ that is our hope. And Paul's writing to Titus. He says the same thing. This is our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. This is what we're looking for. And the scripture teaches that the Lord himself will return to fight all the armies of the earth at Armageddon and he will defeat them and he will set up this thousand year reign upon the earth. This is the source of our great hope. I keep repeating that, but tonight I think it's important that we focus and we keep our minds settled and straight that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. And sometimes this was the source of hope in the New Testament, in the early church. This is what they looked for. Those angels stood there at at Jesus' ascension and said, why stand ye here gazing? This one who has gone away is coming back in like manner. And they believed it was imminent. They believed it could happen in their lifetime. And I think even in the 20th century apostolic Pentecostal movement, there was also a belief that the return of the Lord was imminent, that the Lord could return at any point. I don't mean to be critical, but I'm not as young as I once was. And I have sensed, just no research data here, just anecdotal data, just my own experience, that I don't hear as many sermons about mess, about heaven as I used to. I don't hear as many messages about what is coming as I used to. And I'm afraid that maybe that's because as as we've gotten a little bit more established and comfortable and maybe even affluent in this world, that maybe heaven doesn't hold the same appeal to us that it once did, that, that maybe it just doesn't sound sophisticated enough anymore, that it's not the thing that, that keeps us going forward. But I think the Lord has a way of kind of shaking us up a little bit and letting us know that the foundations of this world, though we may be somewhat comfortable and we may have things lined out and, and laid out just like we would like to have them for right now in this world, that's at its best is built on sinking sand. And those things can go away in an instant. It does not take, it doesn't take some great happening all a government has to do is revalue the currency and everything gets turned upside down. And we've seen it happen in other places and we've always said it can't happen here, but I'm getting less and less sure about that every day. When, when the queen of the East showed up to see Solomon, she said, I had heard of your glory. And I thought I understood, but after Solomon trotted all of his stuff out, she kind of passed out. When she regained her abilities to speak and to think, she said, I'm just going to tell you, I heard a lot of stuff, but the half had not been told. This old world 
can bring some temporary comfort. But it is nothing like where we're headed. And it's nothing like what we are going toward and what we have been, where the Lord is taking us. And we can have great comfort in his scripture and in his prophetic word that his appearing will be glorious in ways that we cannot really even fathom or imagine. Now, the other subject here, we talked a little bit about the resurrection. We talked about the return of Christ. There is also the subject of judgment. Revelation chapter 20. There are, there are several different judgments spoken of in the scripture and there's some differences of opinion. Are they separate judgments or are they all rolled up into one? I think there's, I think there's probably at least two. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians, he says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I think he's referring to believers. We'll all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. This is the, sometimes you'll hear people talk about the bema. That's the Greek word. It's, it's a, a place where awards are handled out, handed out. So it's as though when the Lord has caught us all up, there'll be this time of handing out of awards. But by the time you get to Revelation chapter 20, there's the great white throne judgment. And it seems like that's really where all of the unbelievers. So you want to be at the first one. You don't want to be at the second one. It seems like that's where the unbelievers are coming face to face with their fate. There is a first resurrection, but then there is the resurrection of the dead of the unbelievers to ultimate damnation. And this happens at this great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. There is so much that could be said. And when we talk about these things, sometimes it makes us anxious and, and maybe even a little bit fearful. But I want to encourage you tonight, that's not the, the way that the first church looked at these things. They looked at these things. In fact, Jesus said, when you see all these things happening, lift up your eyes, lift up your head. Don't be downcast. Don't be downtrodden. Lift up your head. Your redemption draws nigh. These things are coming to an end. It may be a bumpy ride, but we know who the captain is. We know who's piloting this airplane. And I, I trust him to get us through whatever thunderstorms are between here and there. And, and when we get there, what glory we shall see. Amen. It really is built on the fact that, first of all, Jesus was raised from the dead and that he ascended. And those two things, he is coming back for us. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that, I didn't read the verse, but he said the, the last enemy, the last enemy is death. And Jesus has already won the victory over the last enemy. What great hope we have tonight. Why don't we stand together? <clears throat> don't, be, don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Be encouraged. Just as surely as the fact that Jesus rose from the dead enables us to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And just as surely as we have received the Holy Ghost... We have hope beyond the grave and beyond the cemetery. That same spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead, Paul said, shall also quicken your mortal bodies. You have received that same spirit. 
And the fact that you've received the Holy Ghost is testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he's raised from the dead, and if I have received the Spirit, then I have nothing to worry about when it comes to what's coming in the future because God is going to raise me up. Now, our minds don't always work that way. And we question and we wonder. But let me just tell you, whenever life is tossing you around a little bit, just go back to the Word. Comfort one another with these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, be ye unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why don't we pray together tonight? Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the strength that you have put into your word and the hope that you have given to us that is beyond this life. Lord, if our hope was in this life only, we would of all men be most miserable. But I'm thankful tonight, now is Christ risen. And that is our hope. That is what ties us and carries us from this world into the world that is to come. What a great hope we have tonight. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. Because you live, all hope, Lord, is ours tonight. All fear is gone. We have hope tonight because, Lord, you live and we know that you do. Our trust and our hope is in you. In the work that you have done, you have provided the way for us, a new and a perfect way, Lord. What great hope you have given to us. Lift up our eyes. Lift us up, Lord. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged in the face even of difficulties today. That you would strengthen our hearts and you would, you would lift us, O oh Lord, and you would help us to know that you are working for us and that the end is certain in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, hallelujah, amen, amen, praise the Lord. Well, Lord bless you tonight, be encouraged, and uh, Sunday we're going to rejoice because Jesus has been resurrected, uh, amen, amen. Some, some folks go to church once a year on Easter but Pentecostals, the Lord's risen every year. We have Pentecost every Sunday. So we're going to come back and celebrate the real way and the real reason why we're able to have Pentecost is because he is risen. Amen. Amen. The ushers are at the door tonight. If you have an offering, be sure and uh, give them that on your way out. And we will see you on Sunday. Lord bless you.